1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, I'm talking with Nicholas O'Shaughnessy about his new book, Marketing the Third Reich, Persuasion, Packaging, and Propaganda. Nicholas, welcome to the show. Very good to be here, Mark. Very good to be here. It's good that we have you on here today.
0: Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself. Yes, indeed. Well, I actually uh, spent my uh, early career as a university lecturer in in marketing, including 11 years at the University of Cambridge. And uh, when I first began, I was contacted by a political scientist I'd known as a student at Oxford, who was trying to explain actually the role of computer direct mail in campaign fundraising in the United States. Didn't really have the tools to analyze it. It was a marketing concept applied to the political sphere. So I wrote my first article with her for electoral studies, and of course that led to a seismic change in focus. I suddenly realized that um, methods of persuasion generated in the consumption economy <coughs> were being translated into the political economy. And this struck me as a highly radical revolutionary move. It had always been latently there, but was now becoming actually there. And the work on Hitler is really simply the backward projection on that, Uh, the realization the more you got into it, that this was exactly what the Nazis were doing, that they were years and years ahead of their time in terms of technique,
1: It's a very fascinating approach to it, and you begin the book with a very Mm. interesting uh, question, which is Mm. whether or not we can regard Nazism as a brand. I was wondering if you could explain what that approach opens up and the conclusion you come to, the answer you provide for that question.
0: Well, I think the answer is provided by the Nazis themselves, who patented uh, their brand, the Swastika, and all its uh, sub-brands because German business were just uh, plagiarizing them. They were held up by business as a model of how to do business, as as a model of how to do branding. They provided, in fact, a protracted tutorial for, for German industries. So they did self-consciously conceive themselves as brands. So the question is, why did they have this knowledge uh, way back in, in time. We're, we're talking about uh, you know well over 80 years ago. And that is because of the salience of the advertising industry in Germany after the First World War. In other words, the World Advertising Congress was in Berlin in 1928. The first advertising course at university level was at the University of Cologne from 1923 onwards and so forth. It was all really... A question of the great German reaction to their defeat in the First World War and their diagnosis of the reasons for that defeat, which lay in uh, an understanding of the role played by propaganda in the cataclysm of 1918. Uh, So uh, the branding was uh, very self-conscious, very self-aware. They constructed it, they studied it, and the brand architect was Hitler himself. He spent hours in Munich Public Library looking for the symbols, stylizing them, seizing them opportunistically. It was, for example, a dentist party member who suggested the swastika. But the stylization of that swastika was by Hitler himself.
1: You make this interesting point, which is one of the goals of of uh, copywriting or or or, or uh, prohibiting the the abuse of mm. Nazi uh, branding mm. was because mm. of the fear of of being sucked into the Germans' attraction to kitsch and how it yeah, might very yeah. well
0: it's in effect corrupt the brand. Amazing, actually. In other words, uh, they found that they were being drowned. Uh, the Nazi Party was being drowned in a whole sea of, of kitsch. There was the horse vessel song sent set to barbershop harmony. There were fans with Nazi logos, um a butcher sculpted uh an effigy of Hitler out of Lard. Uh it was just endless, endless kitsch. And this of course sabotaged the brand by making it risable, making it funny, making it look ridiculous, even though the intent was not to satirize the brand the outcome was that it was satirized and so they had to control it. And so they had an act specifically for the protection of Nazi symbols so that in effect, they patented them and stopped them being plagiarized. You explain this
1: issue of control as playing out, obviously yes. not just in terms yes. of the Nazi brand, mm. but in terms mm. of its marketing. And you have uh, a, yeah. an excellent chapter yeah. where you talk about their, mm-hmm. uh, their management of the media, and I was wondering if you could explain uh how it was they uh, they managed the media and, and and who it was that was at the forefront of this effort
0: yes well i I think there are a, a number of aspects to this question one is the extraordinary detail and discipline with which they actually applied the marketing process in other words, what marketing <coughs> courses what marketing. Professors customarily leave out is operationalization. They had very detailed rules, very formulaic approaches to create that sense of consistency, coherence, and that all crushing sense of omnipotence. They they achieved that by very precise implementation and and control. The broader media thrust is uh, very interesting and occurs really because uh, the moment Hitler comes storms onto the scene is the moment of various technological breakthroughs in media. Firstly, you have sound. The first sound newsreel in Germany is 1930. Uh, Before that, of course, the moving image isn't vocalized. Secondly, the moving image now flows. Whereas before it was staccato because of problems with projection speeds, there are all kinds of technical things which are happening, improvements in amplification techniques in auditoria, for example, the, uh, the evolution of the radio from uh, the crystal set uh, stage uh, with you know young very young men in attics to uh, a commodious item of of the domestic hearth. Uh, that happens in the late 1920s, very suddenly. All of these things coalesce and come together. And, uh, of course, you have things like aircraft, um, the planes suitable for taking someone to, say, five sitters a day in campaign rallies. These technologies either didn't exist before uh, or only existed in an immature state.
1: As you explained, though, it wasn't just the technologies, it was how they marshaled them. One thing I. I hadn't appreciated till I read your book was how decentralized the radio industry was in Germany, how broadcasting was much more localized, and the Nazis, yes. as as part of effecting greater control, centralized mm. it to ensure that it
0: was all directly run uh, from the core. Yes, yes indeed. Uh, the, the radio was uh, terribly important, and uh, what they did was uh, essentially a, a market system where they created very cheap radios, which could only tune into German radio. And these were, appeared eight months after the seizure of power, and then a half-price version a few years later. And so suddenly everyone could have a radio. And secondly, of course, there was the uh, abiding control. Goebbels actually had a switch in his office where he could just switch it on and interfere in the radio programming everywhere with his stentorian voice uh, saying, you know, some important item of news or or something like that. So uh, control was centralized uh, absolutely right. The irony is, of course, that the previous Weimar government hadn't used the powers of radio to project itself. Uh, This is a quite extraordinary lapse, actually. Uh, But there you go. They just had a bureaucratic mentality rather than um, a proselytizing evangelical mentality. That was their problem. You described some of
1: the ways in which you, they implemented this. They, they took advantage of this c- control that they used it to convey their message. I was wondering if you could maybe detail one or two that you found are particularly significant and really uh Uh, revolutionary in terms of their uh, use up until that time.
0: Their use, you you mean of revolutionary use of media? Yes. Yes. Well, I I think they were extraordinary uh, innovators. Uh, One of the things was the newsreel, which they turned from being a newsreel into a a kind of con trick, really, that, that it seemed like news, but it was actually... Propaganda And what they did was formulate these so that there was an interval between that and the main film uh, so that people could digest the newsreel. The newsreel would begin with uh, a fanfare and, and so on and so forth. In other words, uh, the point underlying it is that the unique feature of the Third Reich was that propaganda was not just an instrument of government As it's been in many regimes, as it was, for example, under Napoleon, it was actually the medium of government itself. So when you say um, original use of media, uh, the originality was that every single thing became media, a restaurant menu, uh, graffiti, rumors, horoscopes, even the decision to fight the great battle at Stalingrad because of the resonances of Stalin's name, everything was designed for mediability. Uh, Not even the United States could remotely approach that. And actually, in 1943, Life magazine devoted an issue to Nazi propaganda. And the message was this, these people are incredibly good as propagandists, and we're really, really suffering in this war, because they're beating us at the propaganda and uh whatever happens in the battlefield, they're winning the propaganda war, and this is really scary stuff.
1: I, I like the point that you made, which was that not, uh it was that, that was not the first time that Americans had uh faced Nazi propaganda. You point to how excited uh Goebbels was when he saw the imagery that Nazi uh uh you know cameramen were were, were, were producing being uh mm-hmm. Captured and then just simply uh, replayed in newsreels or uh, or, exactly. or, or reprinted in, in in magazines for for audiences exactly. in Britain and the United States.
0: Yes, I mean uh, this is the um, really horrific thing that the imagery was so good and so easy to get that uh, the international news media, American, British, and so forth, and the newsreels were just uh, reproducing it uncritically. And so they were re- reproducing the Nazi worldview. And this was uh, truly a brilliant masterstroke on uh, Goebbels's part. You see, uh, the trouble is, uh, in terms of the imagistic legacy to history, we really do see the Second World War in particular through the Nazi perspective. The reason is that the German army, the Wehrmacht, had the equivalent of an entire division of propaganda soldiers. The PK companies had 120 men each. They were film technicians, photographers, cameramen. Uh, They were journalists. And what they captured was the most extraordinary footage, uh, which is the living image forevermore of World War II. We had nothing like it. And so it presents two things. It presents an image of the invincibility of the German soldier, but secondly of the German war machine which had very serious weaknesses. They had a paucity of two engine bombers, for example, 80% of the um, supplies uh, and uh, carriages and guns were drawn by horses. They had no aircraft carriers in World War II, although, although they were building one, whereas the British had 13. So. What's going on here, the fact is that they have defined their image for all of time, for all of history to come, with baleful consequences for those who've ceased to remember what they were really like.
1: You detail uh, a number of these different uh, images, but you focus Mm -hmm. on the central product, uh, as you put it, Mm -hmm. which is Adolf Hitler himself. You refer to him as... You refer to him as the Ersatz Kaiser. I was wondering if you could uh, elaborate
0: upon that. That's it. Well, here you have a society which, really going back to the time of Charlemagne, and certainly since German reunification in 1870, had been used to a big man. It had been used to this commanding figure of authority who was more than just a political head, more than just a king, actually, but was a kind of quasi-mystical expression of the essence of uh, German nationhood, and uh, they uh, had uh, that in the Kaiser. The Kaiser proved to be uh, a tin god. He kind of was associated with the loss of the First World War, and along came Hitler, who was everything the Kaiser could have been and wasn't uh, to the Germans of that generation. He was a kind of Kaiser perfected, a charismatic Kaiser. Kaiser-designed by and for modern media, and this filled uh, a huge gap. In the interwar period before Hitler, they'd had Hindenburg, who was a magnificent uh, figure, but uh, they wanted something younger, more dynamic, and ironically, of course, as uh, you, you know, Hitler and Hindenburg ran against each other in 1932 for the presidency of Germany which is an extraordinary thing, actually. And the Nazis actually amazingly presented Hindenburg, can you believe it, as the candidate of the left, uh, the communists and the Jews.
1: <laughs> One of the things I thought was uh, interesting was the different roles that you uh, identified that he plays in uh, their imagery, how he's yes. you know a lead, not just a leader, but he's also... <clears throat> A symbol. Mm. He's a humanitarian, and so forth. I was wondering if you could. Mm. W- was that a, a greater degree of flexibility that
0: they had? Yeah, that- the flexibility is is extraordinary because you see what they're essentially doing is create a Hitler who is the projection of every German's fantasy. There wasn't concretized, rigid image of Hitler. He was a free floating and flexible. Idea, And this was uh, something which every German could believe in to the extent that you could actually believe that Hitler was an (coughs) anti-Nazi who was appalled, if only he knew about it, of the excesses done by his party and and his underlings. But uh, more specifically, I suppose the key thing with, with Hitler was that he was the everyman of the Western Front. He was the first World War soldier that more than anything else was the role he played and he loved doing it wearing a very plain brown shirt with the iron cross whereas everyone around him was dressed up like uh they were participating in a grand opera the marriage of Figaro or something and but he was many other things as well but the the first he was you know people's comrade he was the man of the people he was the kind if you like of husband of Germany. Uh, He was the wise, all-seeing leader. He was the priest-king, played all these roles. Uh, But the greatest role was the everyman of the Western Front, the avenger of the spilt blood of the German soldier killed in the First World War. He was the son who survived and returned to lead Germany. And if you go back, of course, into German mythology, uh, he was really formally identified with Kaiser Frederick Barbarossa, King Redbeard, the king who sleeps under the mountain uh, to be awoken in the hour of Germany's greatest need.
1: And that was a role that no real Kaiser ever could have played to to
0: basically have been that common man. Well, exactly, because a hereditary king or emperor is by definition not one of the people. And uh, Germany, to an extreme degree, was... Not merely a class-dominated society. After all, Britain is a class-dominated society. was, still is. This was actually a caste system. And we we forget that, uh, specifically when we look at, say, modern Germany, that the aristocracy, the Junkers, were not like the English upper class, which you could enter, obviously, by marriage, but you could also make a pile of money, get into it that way. It was all very open, easy, and flexible if you had the cash. You could actually even informally, of course, buy a peerage. But a businessman couldn't become an aristocrat in Germany, nor could a civil servant or, or anything else. You couldn't enter that class. That class was not a class, a class. It was a caste. It kept others out. It only intermarried within itself. It was utterly rigid. And so such a social elite has great difficulty gaining the love, affection, of the mass of the people having credibility in their eyes. From there, you talk about uh, packaging the Reich,
1: and Mm. and you refer to Mm. packaging as dress rehearsal Mm. for consumption. I was wondering if you could elaborate upon that and and, and how it plays a role in in terms of Mm. their approach towards
0: uh, selling the regime, if you will. Yes, indeed. What you really have is the kind of theatricization of everyday life. I counted the number of uniforms which existed in Nazi Germany. There are a few hundred. It meant that all the transactions of the everyday were, were kind of elevated. You have this lovely gloss, you have this shiny surface, and you're dazzled by it. So dazzled, in fact, that you become unaware of the dark side of the regime, which is there in your peripheral vision. If you try and find it, if you look for it, you notice Uh, The signs against Jews, for example, very, very easy, though, to be taken in by the bunting, the packaging, the flags, uh, the euphoria, uh, the uniforms, the uh, stunning visual designs, the architecture. All of these were uh, part of the packaging. In other words, uh, the architecture of the great regime buildings were very, very important to Hitler. His architect, Speer, created this concept of ruin value, what would look like in a thousand years, which uh, perplexed other Nazis. But Hitler was fascinated by it. Actually, he said that uh, civilization uh, endures no longer than its uh, testaments in stone. And if you add all of these things together, they really do add up to uh, an extraordinarily powerful entity which was very, very coherent, very insistent in its awesome power. And um, the operative word is really seduction. If we're talking about Stalin's Russia, we would talk about coercion far more. But with the Germans, highly educated uh, people, a great many of them, the operative word is seduction from the Latin seducere, a leading to oneself. They realized that they could not, for the most part, browbeat people into submission. They had to seduce them. And in seduction, of course, the packaging, the clothes, the outward garment plays uh, a, a huge role. You also describe the
1: events in which, uh, which were another way of packaging. And of course, when mm. we think of events where this took place, we uh, mm. are, are made people's first thoughts turn to the 1936 Olympics. But you describe yes. other events both before and after, which really yes. highlight the consistency with which they applied themselves to it. It wasn't just that one event where they decided to do this. It really ran throughout Mm -hmm. the entire
0: regime. Uh, Yes, it did. I mean, for example, the Expo, the Paris exhibition of 1938, the German pavilion there, the uh, ocean liners like the Wilhelm Gustav, indeed the uh, 36 Olympics, which are an extraordinary tour de force, but also the Nuremberg rallies. The last one was in 1938, and they were planned in great detail by Hitler. (coughs) They were a masterpiece of planning, of ritual. They lasted a whole week with a cast, really, of hundreds of thousands. Uh, The sheer operational detail uh, which went into it, which went into achieving those effects, uh, so much so that it's become a metaphor, really, for organized intimidation ever since, but this was this was all the packaging it arose from the same theories of persuasion and and so forth. in other words, we cannot really distinguish between um surface and essence with the Nazis. The surface was the essence that was, in other words, no substance uh, it was the surface the surface was the message. Uh, the surface was the deep structure. I mean, a very good example is one of their slogans before they achieved power, where they said, "We don't want high bread prices. We don't want low bread prices. We don't want bread prices to stay the same. Stay the same. We want national socialist bread prices," which is absolutely meaningless. And and that is really the point that there is no substance there. If you drill down, it's elusive. It flows away. Uh, The essence of it is surface. This is an utterly superficial regime, but was so good at the superficiality that it could be mistaken for something deep, something profound, something epic, something mystical. It was none of those things. You
1: go on to talk about the various uh, channels through which this was distributed. And Mm. I was thinking, as I was going through that portion of the book, about Mm. how... To, to what degree uh, the people of the time, not just in Germany, but, but outside of mm. Germany, were inundated through every single channel mm. with such a uh, consistent mm. set of imagery and such a consistent mm. message. And, mm. and that degree of mm. coordination is really uh, fascinating as well.
0: Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, The discipline of the coordination, the detailed co- coordination. In other words, you could design those images, uh, that look, But it still wouldn't work because you'd know manual of implementation. You'd know trained cadre of people to implement it. You'd know training programs and so forth. It's only actually by the training and the organization that they achieve all that. For example, if you look at their instructions for the running of public meetings, they have all kinds of instructions on flower arrangements, on Hitler's bust on the pleating of the curtains, on where to sing, on the music, all those other things in order to create that insistent and all-crushing quality we've uh, spoken about. Uh, And so uh, these things uh, were uh, unique, really, to Germany because no other regime had that, uh, I think, detailed application, that uh, training to actually create that... uh, aura. The other thing is, of course, these uh, symbols were so effective in themselves that they sell themselves. It's very easy to be galvanized by them. I think an important distinction to make is that today we look at all those colors or all those uh, symbols, all those images through the prism of Auschwitz. We cannot look at them without our hearts uh, really aching because we think of the gas chambers. What we have to do is try and look at them as contemporaries saw them, without the associations with mass murder, with industrialized killing, with genocide, with the slaughter, of um, not only six million Jews, but for example, the deaths of three million Russian prisoners of war. Um, these are extraordinary things, and so we, we can't actually perceive these symbols are uncritically or in an untainted way. Of course we can't, but we have to make the leap of the imagination to try and perceive how contemporaries saw them free of those genocidal associations with which we connect them today.
1: That, that sense of novelty is, is something you definitely refer to because yeah. in, in, in so many ways they were uh, pioneering uh, techniques. You, 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 you use the phrase new media which we nowadays associate with, with uh, the Internet and and, and 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 social media platforms. Yes. But yep. You, yep. I, I like the way you use it because it points to how, in the 1930s, radio was new. You, you talk about the well, experiments in television as well.
0: Yes, well, that is all, all uh, extraordinary. I mean, the television, uh, 160,000 people watched the 36 Olympics on television, and Goebbels gave more help to the television cameras than he did to any Reichenwald. Televisions were placed. They were designed, you see, as a public, not a private medium. So they were placed in things like the atriums of hotels. A lot of their footage actually survives because it was on uh, a videotape. But the the key was radio. You see, they built transmitters at season for the 36 Olympics. And from that time on, the Nazi message could reach the entire world, and it did, often with clandestine channels. For, these, for example, the Nazis had a Radio Waziristan for Afghanistan, the northwest frontier, the area which gives so much trouble today. It had all kinds of stations for the British Isles. It had a Radio Caledonia for Scotland, a Radio Cymru for Wales. It had a Christian People Station. It had a Workers' Challenge Station, all different demographics. But they could do this. In other words, we think that today we're so clever with the Internet. We forget that the global airwaves were... Uh, a sorted thing by the mid-1930s. Uh, the Russians, of course, had Radio Moscow, but the Germans really could hit the world, not only with formal stations, but also with secret clandestine ones, which people could uh, tune into, as they did in the British Isles. So effective was it that the Nazi, the principal Nazi radio station, was projected at the British Isles was getting 70% of the radio listening public, the British radio listening public at, at weekends, it was getting most of the weekend listening audience, because the rival product by the BBC was so mediocre. They would give you five hours of Sandy McPherson playing the organ, uh, things like that, and the Nazi stuff was so much more Mephistophelian, so much more exciting, so much darker, that people love to listen to it and yet they don't neglect the old
1: media you described the the press campaigns you described uh, yeah. the posters the, the yeah. your book reproduces quite a few of the posters and, indeed and, indeed and and shows just how
0: uh you know targeted their 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 construction was exactly and the point really about uh, the posters is that they were just like commercial advertising they were just like the covers of trashy novels They were vivid, they were lucid, they had a message integrated with image, Uh, they were high color, they were also very, very well targeted and segmented, so that posters designed to appeal to women were very, very different from posters designed to appeal to young males. Uh, Their posters didn't look necessarily Nazi at all. But they thoroughly understood both the traditional media and the new media and they were excellent at both. That's how they worked, so that they could seem both traditional and cutting edge at the same time. You conclude your book by talking about
1: some of the implications of this, the the, the legacy going forward. I was wondering if you could speak to that, the the uh the not just the pioneering how, how the pioneering aspects of this shape mm-hmm. the world in which we live today, but also the mm-hmm. what it means going forward in terms of modern day political communication, which in some ways is a different mm-hmm. environment, but as you point out, yeah. also
0: has a lot of, you know, uh, very clear parallels. Mm-hmm. Well, yes, I think you see one of the uh, worries which I certainly I have. After the collapse of the Berlin Wall, we thought that the world would steadily become Democratic. What's actually emerged is really a different kind of construction, pseudo-democracy, which is a combination of authoritarian democracy and coercion with very, very strong uh, political marketing propaganda and consumerist appeals all integrated together within the same regime. So something like, say, Duterte in the Philippines, uh, Dogan in Turkey and so forth. Uh, Putin in, in Russia, most especially. All of these are maybe the way the world is going to go forward. And the prototype was Adolf Hitler. That is to say uh, the bogus projection of uh, pseudo-democracy. Uh, Hitler, after all, had five referenda after he seized power. And um, they're not, of course, true referenda, but they still created the uh, superficial appearance of a democracy, um, and they integrated it with propaganda, with marketing, with consumption. The same model is really becoming the model of choice throughout the world now, where you don't have true democracies, but you have pseudo-democracies, which... Use Hitler as a prototype, not the genocidal ambition, not the mania for conquest, not the Napoleon complex and all of that. But in many ways, the integuments of the regime are there, including the knock in the night, including extrajudicial murder, as we see in Russia of journalists, as we see in the Philippines of uh, drug sellers. Uh, and uh, Turkey, too, is going really in that direction with the imprisonment of all people deemed hostile to the regime, professors, journalists, and so on. So is Hitler the prototype for our time? I think another impact is, of course, on the far right, where uh, Hitler is a huge favorite. Uh, In other words, he lives in consciousness as no other person in history lives, apart from the founders of the great religions. And he exerts a bad, uh, poisonous influence. His legacy is there, and it's contaminating the atmosphere. There is a huge effort uh, going on at the moment to sanitize Hitler, to deny the Holocaust. That is fundamental to this uh, secret, not so secret project, which is the rehabilitation of Adolf Hitler as one of The most inspiring figures in history, uh, the greatest leader, the kind of, if you like, the um, great symbol of white nationalism, if you conceive white people as a nation, uh, then Hitler is going to be the symbol of that nation, for some, at least, of its adherents. But to make that happen, the Holocaust has to be denied, which is how they do it.
1: It to me it kind of gets back to uh, the, the arguments you make at the very beginning of the book. It speaks to just mm-hmm. how powerful this imagery is. That his image yes. it just is is so uh, alluring and so magnetic in a way because yes. of all of the success uh, of of marketing it early on in the 1930s nineteen
0: forties. Yes, exactly. And in other words, my point and um, historians would criticize this the amount of time i give to the legacy to the afterlife of nazi imagery uh, both today and in in earlier times as well the fast which mick jagger and david bowie used to make about it uh, and so on but i'm going to that laborious uh, extreme simply to illustrate the power of the original imagery those symbols that stylization that orchestration that fine polish was such that the regime was able to forward project itself years ahead deep down into future history. But that is a testament to the part of the original symbols, which were his choice and his design. You take something, indeed, like his design for the Volkswagen Beetle, uh, which lives today even in the current generation of Volkswagen Beetles. It was Hitler's design. It was refined by a Ferdinand Porsche, but it was Hitler's original design, which remains with us today as uh, an article of domestic consumption. Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before
1: we go, could you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Yes. I published a book in the end of 2004, Propaganda and Politics, Weapons of Mass Seduction. Uh, that, of course, reading it today seems an anachronism. So much has happened in the past, little more than a decade. That a new book is needed. I'm working actually on uh, two. Uh, One is called The Idea of Propaganda, or, you know, What is Propaganda will be the title. That's a more distant project. The main one is really to take from the idea of propaganda the specific feature of polemic. Propaganda is many things, it's soft power, its culture, and so forth. But what has happened really today is that polemic has taken center stage. This bitterness, this caustic nastiness, this viciousness, these cultural wars, this violent rhetoric, and all of this, uh, which was always latent as a feature of propaganda, these fair appeals, but have now come to occupy center stage at its most extreme, of course, these in the propaganda of ISIS and Al-Qaeda which I've also worked on quite extensively not least in a report I did for the British Foreign Office so I think there is a need yet again to revisit the idea of propaganda and look at its cursed impact on our own times but specifically to focus on polemic as the governing feature that is really what has Come to us through history, the waves have parted to reveal this key idea of vituperation, vindictiveness, harshness, rhetorical frenzy, polemic, uh, which is really the gift to us of the internet, of social media, and so forth. We never knew it would evolve into that, but it has evolved into that, and so that's going to be the focus of my new book, which will cover things, of course, like fake news and. Um, Putin and all those things, but will give particular space uh, to the propaganda uses uh, of fear appeals by terrorists. So there's a lot of work to do, but as you can imagine, it's a great fun doing. <laughs> uh, well, I
1: definitely. Uh, it sounds like an excellent project, and uh, I wish you all the best mm-hmm. with it. Uh, thank you very much, Nicholas O'Shaughnessy. Thank you for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day.
0: Mark, thank you very much. It's been a huge pleasure. I've enjoyed it enormously, and I hope that one day you'll invite me back again.
1: I I, I hope to have that opportunity as well.
0: Thank you, Mark. Thank you. Thank you.